0: Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 62 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and on this very special episode, coming to you from the Empire Hotel on New York's Upper West Side, I'm joined by one of the greatest actors of stage, screen, and everything in between, who's out there, the great Jeff Daniels. The 61-year-old is currently starring in the first Broadway production of David Harrowers' play Blackbird, which he first started nine years ago off-Broadway. He's nominated for the best actor in a play, Tony, and so we thought this was a great opportunity to sit down and pick his brain about a remarkable career that's lasted now for almost 40 years. Over the course of a very candid conversation, Daniels talks about stardom, the trajectory that he was on following James L. Brooks' Terms of Endearment, Woody Allen's Purple Rose of Cairo, and Jonathan Demme's Something Wild, versus Struggle, which is something that followed his work in those early films, at least until the unlikeliest of career reboots came along in the form of Dumb and Dumber. He also talks about being just about the only guy not nominated for an award in the year in which Terms of Endearment virtually swept the Oscars versus what it's like to be a surprise winner, which is what happened in 2013 when he pulled off a major upset to win the Best Actor in a Drama Series Emmy for his performance in HBO's The Newsroom. And he also talks about how one constant in his life has been the theater. From his work in high school and college through his Broadway debut in the late 70s through his establishment in his native Michigan of the Purple Rose Theater Company, through his more recent returns to Broadway in 2009's God of Carnage, which won the Best Play Tony and for which he was nominated for the Best Actor in a Play Tony, through this year's revival of Blackbird, which has received Tony nominations for Best Revival of a Play, Best Actress in a Play for Michelle Williams, and Best Actor in a Play for Daniels. He specifically talks about why he has chosen to return to Blackbird's mentally and physically punishing role of Ray, a man confronted by a much younger woman with whom he had a sexual relationship 15 years earlier when she was just 12. He talks about how the things that he's done in the nine years since he last played the part have made him better able to do it. And he talks about cherishing this moment in his career, having learned from experience to never take anything for granted, not least of all the opportunity to star in a show on Broadway. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. So always begin each episode just by asking, where were you born and raised? What did your folks do
1: for a living? Born in Athens, Georgia. My dad was a quartermaster in the Navy. For some reason, the Navy had a quartermaster school (laughs) in Georgia, uh, not even close to the ocean. However, that's where he taught, born, lived there six weeks, and then they moved up to Michigan, where he... um, um, took over the family business which is a lumber company in Chelsea Michigan which is where I was raised. Gotcha and when did you
0: first try acting even if it was just you know horsing around and, and then when did it first occur to you that it was a
1: possible career? There were a couple of things one was sixth grade I, I had a choir teacher um, who it was a Friday I think and she was bored and let's do skits and she had us go up and she'd pick a thing and we'd just do it. And with me, she said, you're a politician who's giving a speech and your pants are falling down. (laughs) And I, not a clue as to what comedy was or improv, I turned it into five minutes. And the class was cracking up, she was cracking up. All the while, I remember having a straight face talking about whatever a sixth grader would think that the mayor would talk about while yanking on my pants to keep (laughs) them from, which apparently... The force of gravity, we're going to put them not only to my shoes, but through the floor. Ah. The pants had become that heavy. So she told my parents, she said, you know, there's something going on with this one. I don't know what it is, but pay attention. She would then, in high school, do the high school musicals. And when I was a sophomore, a few years later, I was walking past the auditorium after a very long, brutal basketball practice. And because we were in a small town and she needed guys for South Pacific, she was waiting for me. And she said, "Jeff, get in here." And so I was forced to audition. Got, uh, I think it was radio operator Bob McCafferty, like two lines. But I had this dance I would do, this right. crazy dance in the middle of one of Luther Billis's thing, and it brought down the house. So that that. St- She then got me Fagin and Oliver, Tevye Tevye, Tevye and Fiddler on the (laughs) Roof, uh, Harold Hill, Fantastics, uh, on and on and on. She kept giving me opportunities through high school and through summer musicals when I was in college to learn on my feet.
0: So by the time you go off to Central Michigan University, you were already thinking, this is is what's in my future, acting.
1: I should at least pursue it because, you know, I, I was... It was going so well in the musicals in the community theater in the hometown which is you know all right let's go to college right. and see you know <laughs> so we can go back to being you know someone who's going to take over the lumber business right and i succeeded uh at central i i would by my sophomore junior years i was starring in plays you know caretaker pinter um unsinkable molly brown some other stuff mm-hmm. and um And then I read in the CMU paper, because I wasn't studying in the library, Eastern Michigan was holding auditions for a 16-member rep festival, kids from all over the state, down at Eastern. And uh, so I said, why don't I go audition on a weekend and see how I do? And then that'll be it, because I just want the audition. Mm -hmm. I just want to see a few other auditions, find out that they're way better than me, and then I can go to the Red Wing hockey game that (laughs) night and get on with my life. So I auditioned, and I just took the monologue from Aston's uh, role in, in uh, The Caretaker, because I just finished that. And I just sat on the stage and, and sat in a chair and did the monologue. Pretty simple. I mean, if it were a film, it would have been a close-up. Right. And everyone else was dressed for dinner. I mean, coming in there doing, you know, acting all the way to the back right. rafters <laughs> and the, the back wall. And, and so... I was going to leave, and a guy named Rory Murphy, who was also at Central, who was my first critic, Rory was a few years ahead of me, and any time you did a play at Central, it didn't matter what the college paper said, you had to go into the wardrobe department and sit with Doris Ramsey, the costume designer, and Rory, who was in grad school, and they would sit there and they would go, sit down. So saw the show last night, how do you think you did? You know, and you would get grilled. Wow. And and Rory met me after that first audition down at Eastern. And he says, where are you going? I said, oh, I'm going to go to the Red Wing game. Bunch of college friends. We're going to get out, you know, get drunk. And he goes, no, you're not, you idiot, you. You're going to go to the callbacks because you've been called back. And one of the du- directors of these four plays is Marshall W. Mason, who's the, who was the artistic director of the Circle Repertory Company, who was out at Eastern, doing a favor for Jim Gusoff, the head of the department whom Marshall had gone to Northwestern with. And he goes, you're staying. And so he forced me to stay. Marshall, I was the last one called in the callback, desperate to get out. Now the game, forget the game. I don't get to go to the game now. And Marshall was casting Summer in Smoke. And he had me, Dr. John, he had me sit in a chair and a girl named Deb Miller, I think, sit down and so we were two feet apart looking at each other and he goes do the scene again close-ups and 30 other kids in the callbacks were sitting in the room watching and he goes just tell it to each other tell the scene to each other and we did and he goes good thank you I'm done here and we all waited and he posted the and I was Dr. John so the implication of that, so maybe if you can just
0: set the scene a little bit about the Circle Repertory Company, because it sounds like it was extremely important in, in shaping you as an actor and all of that. So what was it, and why was it so
1: important to you in the ensuing years? Well, I was clueless at the time, right. uh, except that maybe I would go to New York, and I didn't know how. Right. And Marshall Caspian Summer Smoke, and then at the end of the rehearsal period said, you know what you should do with your life, don't you? Okay come to New York, become an apprentice at the Circle Repertory Company, which I then came to find out was the home of Hot Baltimore, of Lanford Wilson, of one of the handful of plays that was um, successfully doing new American work. And three months later, it was spring, three months later, September, I went there, 76, and Marshall knew that there was an actor that was going to drop out of a play, And he basically had found his replacement, me. And so he put me right in there, and I was in over my head. But um, he said, do this play, and then take my acting classes for two years, and be an apprentice, and that's what I did. And it took a year for me to get both feet into New York and not have one foot still in Michigan. It took a year. And during that, First year, you also, I believe,
0: landed what was your first experience on Broadway, right?
1: Gemini. Was that? Yeah, well, that kept me in New York because I'd been there a year, hated it. Yeah. You know, 21 out of a cornfield in the middle of Michigan, and I'm in where? 70s New York City? <laughs> it ain't like now. No. <laughs> it ain't like now. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, 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 I was going to go, I was going to leave. And a couple of things happened. I called my parents, and I said, look, I'm, it's not working. And, and uh, my dad was very sympathetic and understood, and he's thinking Lumberyard, Lumberyard. <laughs> and my mom was very quiet. And finally, at uh, Marge, what do you think? And she goes, find a way to stay, and oh, hung up. Wow. Luckily, Marshall said, look, Gemini, Albert Interato's play that Circle had been doing, was moving to Broadway. And he goes, look, there's an understudy role, actually roles, I want you to understudy three roles. There's some money. Stay in New York. OK, so I made some money understudying and then got some commercials and then said, well, if I can make it one year, I can make it five.
0: Can we note that one of the people I believe you understudied was Reed Bernie, who's also nominated this year for a Tony alongside you, which is kind of cool. Beautiful. Yeah. It's just beautiful. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I remember, Reed was great. He was great then, is now. He's he, It was uh, John Hadari was the other one, and Bob Picardo. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but yeah, I understudied Reed on Broadway. Never got on for any of them. Really? Which is, you know, that's 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 the way it is. Right. That's, uh, that's what you, you need to tell your understudy. Right. I'm so glad you're here, you never see the stage. <laughs> <laughs> well, so three years later
0: was 5th of July on Broadway, where you did see the stage, and I wonder, was that your first... Interaction directly with Lanford Wilson who you would then have a number of them with over the coming years
1: Yeah, he wrote 5th of July for the company and members of the company and I still have that script that first script which was 30 pages of a first act and Bill Hurt, uh, William Hurt was a member of the company at the time and Bill and, and Bill and I were playing lovers and uh, Lanford hadn't even picked the character name, so it was Bill Jeff, Bill Jeff, Bill <laughs> Jeff. It was a mess. It was just a mess. And, so and you But he wrote it. it. He wrote that. It took a year or so. That was when Lanford... They counted on Lanford for a play every year. He was the star playwright, and he would write one every year, Wow. find a, and try to live up to himself. And 5th of July, we uh, opened it in the spring of 78. What led in... 81
0: which is i guess during the period that you were in 5th of July so i don't know if you did you take a take a leave from it to do uh ragtime or were you able to do ragtime during the day your first movie with a bunch of big time actors uh how did how did that work out
1: I don't i don't remember the chronology of it i don't i don't remember leaving 5th to do ragtime i think they were uh, you know, they didn't overlap for sure. some reason. Sure. I, I don't know why. I, I don't remember doing that to, to you know, see, ya, I'm going to do go do right, movies. Right, and right. I, I don't think that would have played well with Lanford. But
0: was, were movies even on your wish list at that time, or is it something where somebody came to you?
1: Movies were always on the wish list because, again, back at Central Michigan University, I saw Dog Day Afternoon. Okay. And seeing that, I saw it six times uh, or so. And I kept going back to see what Pacino, see the mechanics see the craft, see when I thought he was ad libbing, when I thought it was script, and trying to figure out how this guy made it look like he was so alive. And and just I just whatever it is he's doing, I gotta go to where you learn how to do that. And I knew that was New York, not LA. Right. And then I got real lucky with Marshall. So now I'm in New York. But I always had my eye on, on, on the movies because of Dog Day Afternoon. I, 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 just, I just knew I wanted a shot at that. And so with Ragtime, even though you're only in a few
0: scenes, you were present for, to witness James Cagney and, and
1: some other pretty
0: amazing people, right?
1: Cagney, yeah. I, I, was, I was in the room with Cagney. I was in the room when he screen tested. Wow. And uh, he came in and, and didn't think he could do it and insisted on screen test just to prove to himself, mm-hmm. I think. And Milos Forman was the director, and he was, he was going, yes, you, Jim, you, you're going to be beautiful, <laughs> beautiful. And then you go, ah, rah, rah, rah. and they, it was a long process of, right. of, of trying to get him comfortable, comfortable enough at, at the age of 81 or so to kind of resurrect a semblance of what he used to be able to do, even in, if it's just sitting in a chair in a close-up. And he finally got there, and when he got there, You could look up at the little, well, there were a bunch of us in the room with him, kind of as background extras Mm -hmm. in a scene he was testing. You could look up at the monitor, and it was a close-up of him, and you could see the old Cagney. (laughs) The only other guy I've seen do this is Clint. Clint, where it's just, he's, you know, are you ready to go? All right. Here, take my coffee. You know, and then, then all of a sudden the camera rolls, and he becomes that. And then he's done, and he comes out of it and it Cagney did the same thing. Amazing, so for you, the first really big film
0: role would have been in terms of endearment, right? Yeah. So just to remind people, this is James L. Brooks directing, you with Deborah Winger and Jack Nicholson and Charlie McClain, and uh, goes on to win Best Picture, million Oscar nominations. What was for you the, the takeaway from that experience where you were playing this sort of narcissistic, uh, philandering husband of, of Deborah Winger's?
1: Well, it, um, um, it was a great opportunity. It was a great entry into the movie business because you're sitting on a set watching these three people work. Uh, Jim Brooks is one of the most creative people you'll ever meet. Um, and it was the unlikable role. And, and, and kind of that's what you get. And you know, Circle rap in New York teaches you to play everyone. It doesn't teach you to brand yourself and play only likable heroes. You know, that's what Hollywood does. That's what corporate acting is all about. But I, I didn't, you know, I'm 28. I was thrilled to get it. I'd right. paid them. <laughs> but um, it was a great education on the set. Um, when the Oscar nom- nominations came out, uh, even a friend of mine said, you know, even the guy who combed your hair got nominated. <laughs> but I watched it at home. Right. Which was which was. In hindsight, great. Healthy, you think? It didn't hit. I didn't hit early. Right. I, I had a great opportunity. I learned a lot. And I watched the Oscars at home. That's okay. That's now, okay.
0: It didn't mean, though, that you weren't on the on the sort of matinee idol track even to the extent that that was what you were cast as by Woody Allen in Purple Rose of Cairo. So I wonder for you... Um, how that next step, which I really think was the next, the next big one that you did. um, What's it like to a get a call from Woody Allen saying, I want you to potentially be in my movie, but then B uh, to be the, you know, the, 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 the matinee idol kind of guy. Was that uh, a place you ever thought you would find yourself
1: as this guy who trained in theater and all of that? No. And I still don't, you know, I mean, you, 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 even when you're young and you think you're, you're good looking. Uh, you're standing next to you're in waiting room with waiting rooms with Richard Gere, <laughs> and Christopher Reeve, you know. <laughs> I mean, just you know, Chris had this Clark Gable jaw, and the you know the eyes are all wide, right. and it's just it's just what you have to be if you're going to be a movie star. I was not that. I was Jack Lemmon. I was Dick Van Dyke. I got. I knew that. And I knew that eventually when they got over the fact that, you know, geez, he's not as good looking on camera as we thought, <laughs> that, that I was going to, you know, that's where I needed to, that's the lane I needed to find. But, um, and Woody was great because uh, I came on to Purple Rose, and I remember going to Woody after a couple days and just going, I'm, I'm, having, I'm having trouble, Woody. I'm not Errol Flynn. I know I'm not Errol Flynn. I can't, I can't make myself believe I'm that. Um, and he goes, I don't want Errol Flynn. I, I want you to be this innocent, naive, good-looking guy, not great, good-looking guy, and I want you to adore Mia Farrow. That's all you have to do. Pour everything into her, and we'll see it. And it was a great, it's what Circle taught me, but it, but Woody, I mean, and then from then on, the movie worked, that day on. And you got some, I think when,
0: I have no Expectation, or there's no reason that you should remember this, but I interviewed you first time kind of at length in 2005, and we talked about this, and one of the things that you said was, quote, halfway through The Purple Rose of Cairo, Woody Allen told me I was good. And for a young actor who's wondering whether he'll make a career of this when someone like Woody Allen tells you you're good, it was a big turning point for me. And so it really was, did you need that sort of um Validation at that
1: time you were still doubting yourself a little bit? Yeah, because you're still reading reviews. Yeah. You're being told that you're crap. Yeah. You, 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 the rejection uh, for every movie you get, there's rejection left, right, and sideways. It's brutal. It's brutal, this business. So you never think you're going to last. And then Woody said that. And that's what I I knew. I'm at least going to make a living in this business because if I'm good enough for Woody... I'm good enough for anybody, right. and I needed to believe that. And and I one of the next movies I went up on was uh, Heartburn, mm-hmm. and I went to Mike Nichols' apartment, and uh, and I he talked about it. And he goes, "Well, this is the role, and you'd be with Merrill And you know, and I said, oh wow, great. I said, "Do you want me to read?" And he said, "Literally." He said, "You're good enough for Woody. You're good enough for me." Wow, that's great. And it was, oh man. And I think
0: you know, it, it's when you also started to cross other actors. Radar as somebody they should look up to. I just, we just had on this podcast a couple of weeks ago, Ray Liotta, who was talking about something wild and how when he knew that he was going to be reading opposite the guy who he'd just seen in Purple Rose and who was on the late shows, late night shows promoting it, uh, he was nervous because he was going to be working with you. So already it was, I guess, crossing other people's radar. But in 1986, the year after Purple Rose, you made this, this big decision to relocate your family back to, or to relocate your your family to michigan and i wonder why you guys decided to do that and what you think the impact was on your life and career pro con all across the board because it was a big move
1: big move uh it was hell or high water we're going home and um i had three or four movies at the time and they were coming but no idea how long they would last and no faith that they would last Again, the rejection and the famous fleeting, all of that stuff. Uh, so I'm not going to get the rug pulled out from under me. If that's going to happen, when it happens, when you get that phone call on Tuesday from the agent going, "You're over." I've heard it, not about me. Right. I, I, I remember, what about so-and-so?" Now he's over. Wow. You're going, right. <laughs> "Oh. didn't I said, "When that happens, I'll be home." Right. And I can walk out on my porch and go to work at the lumber company. It's okay. I gave it a great run, but I didn't trust it. Goodman, John Goodman told me once, we came up together, did a commercial together, mm-hmm. butterball Bowl commercial together. <laughs> Back in the 70s, John said, and John said when he said, he said, uh, just uh, whatever limo I'm in, I know somebody else's ass is going to be sitting in it tomorrow <laughs> night. And it was a great, yeah. a great you don't trust it. Right. So I moved home. We knew how to raise the, a family there. Mm-hmm. Kathleen's from there, I'm from there, and it's just, that's what we're gonna do. The airport's an hour away. You then take yourself off the train, heading towards being the biggest star in the history of stars. You're now no longer on that track. So now you're supporting. or And as you go along, you're doing things. And then I started to do some independent movies before they were fashionable and nine people saw checking out no one saw love hurts and i was on my way to being over in the mid-90s and i the only time i've gone out to la in uh, early 90s was to uh, audition for about five movies one of which was dumb and dumber which
0: which is terrific and we'll have to i'm going to ask you about that in a moment but one of the things in between going back to Michigan and doing Dumb and Dumber that became a, a, and I think remains a huge part of your life was establishing in 1991 the Purple Rose Theater Company, which brought you back into contact with Lanford Wilson. And you were writing for it, I think, almost once a year. And it was, I mean, maybe you can just explain physically what it is and also
1: conceptually why it's why it's so important to you. I live in a small town, Chelsea, Michigan, 5,000 people inside the city limits, village limits. And um, I was bored. I was playing golf, too much golf, didn't care about the game. Uh, and I, I, creatively, I was going to sleep because you'd wait months to get a job. And I needed something. I still need it today. Uh-huh. Uh, and so I just said, what if? We created Circle Rep here in the Midwest. What if we took that new American play and gathered a bunch of actors who are good enough, teach them everything I know, from the old fats to that 21-year-old kid I used to be. Now he or she has a place where they can learn what they need to know before they go to New York, unlike me. I was—we were just My high school music teacher and I were just winging it. Um, let's teach them what I was taught at Circle Rep. And let's, do play, let's Let's write plays about, and then I, I insisted on the playwrights, especially me, write about the people sitting in the seats. That's what I tell regional theaters all over the country. Don't wait for New York to tell you what you should be doing. New York doesn't know. Maybe they used to, but they sure don't know. <laughs> it's just too financially risky, off-Broadway, on. I mean, it's just, sorry, it's not what it used to be. But... You want to succeed, write about the people sitting in the seats. Get your local writers, teach them about playwriting, teach them how to tell a story. It's all the same. It'll take a while, but write about them and hold a mirror up to them. And we've had great success doing that, and they will come. They will come, and if you write funny, they'll come in droves.
0: Right, and so just to state for the record, this is like, you, you do it all at the same 168 seat theater there and and uh, it's sort of throughout the year things are going on we're, there?
1: We're 40, 42 weeks a year. We wow. run six shows a week. Uh, the only time we're dark is to load in, load out. Um, four shows a year, they'll run anywhere from six to eight weeks to three months, wow. depending on the slot. Um, and we're 25 years old. We just celebrated our 25th anniversary. Awesome. So.
0: Coming back to Dumb and Dumber for a sec, had comedy always come to you as easily as dramatic parts You know that you had to play? It came first. Yeah. Again, back to that sixth
1: grade class. Right. I instinctively knew what to do. I walked onto that stage in South Pacific and did a dance that was funny, that 700 people in an auditorium were falling out of their chairs laughing. I simply knew what to do. So you can't teach that. Right. So you can refine it uh, and understand it better. Um, But I knew how to do that. So I knew that was there. But Circle Rep didn't do comedy. Marshall was very, very insistent on We do serious, important work. And and, I mean, there were guys like John Hogan and Danton Stone and I who were writing these comedies. And they would just go, no, no. (laughs) And I remember the first comedy we wrote called 42 Cities and 40 Nights. It was about an agent, a down and his luck agent, with a singer from Queens who wanted to make the career transition to Manhattan. And <laughs> we great. were going to go on the road right. and just play every tent and state fair and back porch, right. thinking we were going to head to Vegas so we could have dinner with Wayne Newton. That was the story. <laughs> that was the g- <laughs> and we did. We had the sacred Friday reading at Circle right. Rap. the sacred where Lanford reads his, you right. know, sacred. <laughs> And we come in there and our comedy lasted three hours oh, it was three hours long so that didn't go anywhere when we took a break we're kind of thinking i don't know it's going pretty good right. I think maybe broadway i don't know let's not get ahead of ourselves That's i went weird. into the bathroom and lanford was at the other urinal and he's standing there he's with a migraine and he's standing there and uh and i said what'd you think he goes I'll give you a hundred bucks for the jokes. And then he hit the flusher <laughs> <laughs> walked out.
0: That's fantastic. Well, so in the case of Dumb and Dumber I've I've read that Well, first let's just say let's preface this. You say your career was pretty much dead before that, for a few years, but dying, 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 because, but, but, let's note, you did some. There were moments of light in there. I mean, Gettysburg, Little Round, Uh I say, round d- top I was doing secrets. okay. Yeah,
1: but the move to Michigan now yeah. was in jeopardy because right. it just wasn't. It was almost like you know you might need to be out here longer than you know a weekend, right? You know, uh, <laughs> just and that balance. that's what was at stake. Okay, so now,
0: prior to Dumb and Dumber, had you ever? interacted with Jim Carrey. Did you have any thoughts about Jim Carrey? And now, because here, my understanding was he's he's saying basically he's the comic guy and he wants a guy who's not associated, not known as a comic actor to be his partner in this. So uh, just how did it all come together?
1: One of five movies I auditioned for, the other was, others were serious. This certainly wasn't. Went in, auditioned because I really wanted to shake it up. I really, I was not happy with you know, playing the fourth role in another com another drama that no one would see. I was just over it, and and I said, let, and they let me go up on it, and I had a good reading. and Jim sat in the, the little they had like a forty seat little theater mm-hmm. wherever we were, Santa Monica, and Jim sat there and watched. And then they had me back three days later. Um, I remember going up to Ojai and playing golf with a friend of mine, waiting for the the callback day, and I'd read the script again, and I'd say to him. Let me ask you something i take x-lax and then i'm sitting on a toilet and it plugs and i scream i'm shaving is that funny he said yeah that, that, that's funny yeah let me ask you this i'm going up a ski lift and i stick my tongue on the pole and it won't come off and i end up going around yeah that's funny snowball and everything was funny i'm going okay so I went down for the callback and now the only thing changed was Jim had come down four rows and right. was now sitting there. Right. So we read among other things the hot tub scene. And before we even started, Jim shook his head. And that <laughs> that look of complete absence of any IQ whatsoever right. behind his eyes was there. And when I saw him do that, I <laughs> Did the same thing. It's just right. shake. Just. You, you, literally, you're sloshing your right. brain around <laughs> so that nothing's in sync right. anymore. Right. And then you look at each other. <laughs> I swear I had it then. I swear that. And, and and then we, you know, I got it. And right. it was. Jim said, I can't have a comedian. A comedian will just try to top me. He won't listen. It's two guys. It's a buddy-buddy. And I got to have an actor who's going to make me listen because and Jim no Jim is a performance artist he's a solo act yeah. and he really wanted someone that he would force him to listen and pay right. attention and and be more of an actor a comedic actor instead of just a comedian and I, that's why I got it
0: I don't think I've ever laughed harder at a movie it was it's and for you was that kind of a, the fact that a lot of people came out of you know young young people in particular came out of that. Maybe they hadn't seen anything else you'd done before, but they now associated you as the guy from Dumb and Dumber. It's a it's a compliment to be associated with anything, I guess. But for you, as as a guy who's primarily done you know serious theatrical, not to say it's not serious or tough to do, but like, how did you process that uh, new persona that you had for a lot of people? I never
1: looked at it as anything other than a great thing, right? Because it did exactly what I wanted to do. It blew up my career, right? Uh, and suddenly, I'm in a movie that we were number one. I think for six weeks in really? a row. Wow! Uh, I'm hosting Saturday Night Live. <laughs> um, that wasn't happening before Dumb and Dumber. Right. Uh, we're getting calls for other things because you're in a movie that made a lot of money. And and I always I said, I thought I thought that's what we were supposed to do. Right. Right. You know, I, the Greeks were holding up two masks. Right. You're supposed to go A to Z. Right, What's right. this branding and image crap? I know. So I I I I loved it. And 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 look, I mean, imagine the people who would who would when they're out there who are so devoted to Gettysburg. Right. And Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain and the great unsung American hero that the guy truly was. Right. The next movie this guy does. <laughs> Colonel Chamberlain was <laughs> right? sitting on a toilet, <laughs> screaming, "I'm shaving!" It's there fantastic. were some people that uh, <laughs> right they, they had a little a cardiac arrest. Right, how, how
0: do you reconcile this? <laughs> um, and so that started this this very nice run through the through the rest of the '90s. Fly away home, Pleasantville, a lot of really uh, HBO movie cheaters. That was I think you got a lot of great feedback about. Um, is it true that you also went out for the part in American Beauty that oh, Kevin yeah. Spacey ended up?
1: Yeah, yeah, who was great? Yeah, and uh, I think I was on the short list in case yeah. Kevin didn't make the deal. You would have been great as well. I mean, I. But that's yeah. But Kevin, yeah, look, Kevin yeah. was great, and it was a great movie. And Sam, that's where I met Sam Mendes for the first time. Sure. And, you know, I was on I was on the short list in case it didn't work out with Kevin. But right. Um, you know. Oh well.
0: Well, so the the I think one of my certainly one of my all time favorite movies, and I think for you, I, I've gotten the sense that it was at least at that time. Uh, You said, quote, from beginning to end, it's the best thing I've done, was Noah Baumbach's The Squid and the Whale, which was just awesome. Uh, It was, uh, to remind people, or if they haven't seen it, uh, this literary professor, Bernard Berkman, based on Noah's father, uh, who is sort of a, uh, what's the word, pretentious, uh, arrogant, uh, condescending.
1: Self-published.
0: Self-published, right. So um, I, I guess... That was a role that uh, there had been resistance from other actors to playing because he's quite an unlikable character in a lot of ways. Uh, why
1: were you drawn to him in spite of that? There were some guys bigger than me um, that were floating around it or had been attached, and uh, for whatever reason, Noah, he had no money. He had like a million bucks and, you know, no permits, and he was going to shoot it in his house and in a friend's apartments, and it was one of those, right. you know. And truly an indie, and uh, my agent called and said, "Look, there's some guys that are well, there's one guy in particular who's up on this, but I think you can steal this." I was doing because of Win Dixie in um, Louisiana, where I was yet again working with children and animals and dogs, and I said, "I'll be on the first plane." <laughs> so I, uh, I flew to New York and I, uh, I met with Noah and Laura Linney. mm-hmm. And the first thing I said to Noah was, "This is funny." I mean, it's dark funny, Mm -hmm. but and then I want you—that's funny, that's funny, that's funny—and Noah looked at me because you're the first actor who has said that, and that was kind of—I think what did it, what you bonded over, yeah. And then it was, then it was—we got into rehearsals, and I wasn't getting it. I wasn't—it wasn't working. Uh, And then um, I—I remember telling Noah, "It ain't working." And he didn't, I mean, he didn't really know what to tell me. And I said, you know what? i got to personalize this. There's a guy that hasn't had the success that people like Norman Mailer and others that he reveres, he thinks he's their equal, but he's not. He's just not. And, And I said, you know what? I've never been to the Oscars. I, early in the 80s, maybe I could have, presented best catering or something but i, I turned it down <laughs> i said if i'm gonna go right i'm gonna go because i'm nominated right and i've never been
0: which is bullshit and i said
1: yeah. well, no 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 but i said let me pour some gas yeah. on that and light it yeah and that became the core behind wow it.
0: that's amazing and i mean if if ever there was a situation where you should have been nominated, it was for that, and I think well, that, we tried like hell. Yeah, I, well, that's why we probably were speaking in 2005.
1: I did the campaign. <laughs> you did it. I right. talked to everything above, right, a, right. above a high school paper. Yeah, I sat down. I gave him a full <laughs> length. Right. And well, then, you know, in the end, it was it was other people, but uh, it was a it was a great great experience, great film. Even the campaign is as, as ridiculous as those things are. I I got to with a lot of great yeah, people philip and terrence howard and right. guys like that and uh, so
0: well so now 2007 connects to 2016 because 2007 was the first time you played the part that you're now playing um in blackbird as ray this guy who i don't want i don't want to Say too much for people who haven't well, seen it on the got familiar. two weeks left. Yeah, they're there. When does this right. air? <laughs> we're gonna, like now? Right, we'll turn it around pretty quickly. But yeah. I mean, the gist. We're done in two <laughs> <we're> <laughs> weeks. Stuff <laughs> guys. So I sorry. abused this girl. Right, right. <laughs> 15 years earlier, you know, this 12 um, year old girl who was the daughter of friends of Ray, uh, Ray had a sexual relationship with, which. I don't know what word you would use if it's—I it. I guess it's in, in, inherently sexual abuse. However, it seems like it was a consensual uh, situation, which doesn't justify it, but it wa- that's a fair way to describe what the relationship was when it happened?
1: Yeah, there were two people making the decision to do this, but only one was an adult. Right, right. And so no matter what Ray says throughout the play, there's still that. There's so, still that.
0: So how did this— Played by David Howard first, even cross your radar in two thousand seven, and then, I mean, as as uh, evident from the fact that I I seen you a few times these last couple of weeks, you can you're you're I don't know how you're even walking. You know, it's like tough. Uh, this this is a show that that is so physically demanding and grueling. Um, why would you ever want to go back to it nine years later?
1: Um. Lynn Meadow at Manhattan Theater Club sent. I was in the Chateau Marmont making a movie I hated, and <laughs> um, and and literally no one saw. Again, another one. Right. <laughs> and and it was one of those. Maybe I should just. And and she sent this play going. I don't know if this is even something you'd want to do, but, and I read it, didn't know how to do it, blown away by what it could be, and so I said yes, and we did it at the Manhattan Theater Club. When we did it the first time, I did my best but I think getting a chance now you know nine years later when Scott Rudin called and said Let, we wanna, I want to put Blackbird on Broadway I mean first it's Broadway that's you know that doesn't happen right I've taken about 50 pictures of the marquee because you know <laughs> it's, that's, that's special right um, and I looked at it and I said you know what I didn't I didn't go far enough I didn't go dark enough I didn't make the choices, even leading into page one, that would give me the chance to make the portrayal definitive, which is the goal. That's what you want to do. You want even the actors who've done it, who come to see it, uh, go, I. That's it. That's how it should have been done. That's the goal. Yeah. So, so I, I knew that with with Joe Mantello and I, and with Michelle Williams, uh, you know, as the girl, she would bring a whole new different a different thing to it than Allison Pill did. That that would help change it up. Mm-hmm. Um, and then go dark. And uh, that's what we did.
0: So I also have read where you've indicated that there were things that in your own career professionally have ha- that have happened in those nine years, which. I should certainly ask you about that may have changed the way that just your own capabilities or confidence or whatever as an actor. And so, I mean, the two big ones that jump out are obviously the the most recent thing before this that you did on Broadway, 2009, God of Carnage, which ended up winning Best Play. You were nominated for Best Actor in a Play, and that was with Hope Davis, James Gandolfini, Marsh Gay Harden, Big Hit. The other thing was HBO's The Newsroom with delivering Aaron Sorkin dialogue for you know, however many episodes it was over the course of three years, three seasons, uh, what was the impact of those two experiences on you as an actor, um, the guy, you know, that may have changed the, resulted in a different actor than did Blackbird nine years ago?
1: Well, it's, it's, it's pretty complex to get, to stand there, within a, in a show, first of all, with Carnage, with Gandolfini, and Jim, so brave. He saw the play in London, Was able to get it made uh, and done on Broadway because of him, and to put himself out there, knowing that all they would see is Tony Soprano, and he wanted to be more than that. Um, To see the battle that he had to try to get them to forget, or working against and branding an image, um, was a great lesson. And and I've I've, uh, that and the fact that it was so wildly successful, Mm -hmm. it was. The Hamilton of its season, yeah. we were doing 102 percent. It was standing room only yeah. the whole run, so uh, we were rock stars. <laughs> and but to us, we're just you know trying to keep the ball in the air every night, you right. know. And so uh, that you learn about that, um, you learn how to do that every night, and we did it from March until whenever Thanksgiving, mm-hmm. and the newsroom to, you know, there's a thing about being number one on the call sheet. And the cliche of it starts at the top. It does. And having been around a long time and been up and been down, this was a great opportunity to have Aaron Sorkin tailoring a role for you. Um, so every, I just worked, I did things on that show that you don't usually do and one, the big one was come in memorized mm-hmm. every day. I don't care if it's 19 pages like we had one day where I had first season I sat with uh, uh, David Krumholz, I think was the actor playing my shrink. It's a 20-page day. In a movie, that would be three weeks. Unbelievable. Um, two weeks. But um, one day. Come in off book or don't come in. And we would stand there in the morning at 6.30 in the morning, with all the other actors in a circle, and I would, we would start, uh, Aaron would go, let's run the lines. And I'd just stand up and run the lines. And if you had your sides, your little baby scripts mm-hmm. that, that, because you didn't know them, I would stand there and do the lines while you look down at your little baby script. Right. <laughs> so. And and. Right away, the, the cast got it, you know Sadaski, Tom Sadosky, Allison Pill, they're all Sam. I mean they're all theater people. Yeah. they go, oh good, this oh good so they would come in off. Did it feel like doing theater? That's yeah, right. but it, you needed theater because of all the dialogue right. and at his heart, you know heart of hearts Aaron's a playwright, so there going be a lot of, there's gonna be there's going to be a lot of words. so uh, we all you know that, that was the drill. that's yeah. how you do newsroom. What was fun was the LA day players, not all. Many of them were right. told early on, right. uh, t- um, uh, I got a call from the producer, uh, if you aren't off book when you show up, you're gonna get your ass handed to you. It was, and that was okay. Right. I didn't mind that. I've right. walked on movies where you're memorizing it from the makeup chair right. to the set. I mean, it's so lazy. Right. I've done that. Right. I mean, speed. I mean, right. how many times you, <laughs> you come around the corner, look out, cut, lunch. You know. I mean, it's not that difficult. But you can't do that with right, Sorkin. Right. You got to get on top of it. So occasionally we, we'd have a day player come in, and we we would, we would do take one at about seventy-five percent speed, you know, and uh, great, okay, good, all right, take two, all right, let's pick it up. Now we're going into Sorkin speed, right? Which is you know like the Indy 500 getting the green flag. <laughs> <laughs> off right off they go. Now we're going 200 miles an hour. Right. I've seen smoke come out of L.A. day players' ears. <laughs> I've seen guys break out in right. flop sweat. Cut it! And the makeup people come running in, patting him. And then there's a thing that happens. And it happened to all of us. Right. It just happened later. You get sorkinized. Which is, you've got all ten pages in your head. Right. You know it. Right and but because there's an overload because it's episode 6 and you've had every weekend spent memorizing it's like preparing for fi- studying for finals for 7 right, months right. and every 2 weeks there's a new final it's just endless but but episode 6 i remember in the first season i remember just there was a line and i in the middle of the newsroom and i couldn't and i what is it i'm sorry what is it and they called it out what is it? And I took a knee. I literally took a knee and held my head, put it on a desk, and they came and they read it to me, and I still couldn't say it. <laughs> and then I couldn't remember any of the lines, and, and they said, okay, you need to go home. Yeah. <laughs> and that we all went through it. It right. all just goes yeah. because there's so much that's gone in. And so well, I, I, it's happened to all of us, but in particular for those of us who... Once it happens to you, then you know how to That's so kind of prepare. But the day players that, that would come in, and, and then they would get the script in front of them, and it was like you know they were reading French. How big a deal was it for you? In
0: You go in 2013 to the Emmys as this <laughs> perennial nominee who nobody was giving a shot to that no. year going into it, and
1: then you hear your name called. On the way to the uh, ceremony, I would stayed off the internet, which right. I highly recommend. And and uh, I asked my wife, I said, come on, all right, so what, what are the chances? Right. Give me the chances. Right. And she goes, well, it's between you and Hugh Bonneville of Downton Abbey for fifth or sixth. <laughs> I said, sounds like we're going for the salmon or the steak. That's right. <laughs> So we went and uh, sat there. No pressure. None of this is going to happen. Right. And it's House of Cards. It's Modern Family. Right. It's Breaking Bad. Madman. Homeland. Yeah. Madman. Yeah. It's just you're at somebody else's party. Right. <laughs> and just and the HBO folks said, look, it took Gandolfini several years, so just, just. But also, people have been giving the you
0: know the the show had people that absolutely loved it, and also had people that were always. Giving hated. it a hard time, right?
1: Yeah, and 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 so it's like, well, okay. So you got nominated, and that's it. Right. But the wrong people started to win. <laughs> Merritt Weaver for <laughs> Nurse Jackie over the Modern Family girls. Right. Um, Tony Hale in Veep over the Modern Family guys right. and all of that. Right. Uh, and then best dramatic actor in a series, supporting, supporting. And then you got Aaron Paul in Breaking Bad, and you got Slattery in Mad Men. You got Mandy Patinkin in, in, home, in Homeland, and the winner is Bobby Boardwalk Empire. <laughs> and Bobby was about five seats right. from me, and he and I had kind of looked at each other right. when we first got there and said salmon or steak. Right. And Bo- Bobby's looking at me going, what the hell is – <laughs> he's going up, and I'm thinking – Anything could happen. I got to get something ready. I got to get something, because it's 50-50 Because the wrong people are winning. Well, I don't know if it's the wrong. The wrong people were winning. You could feel it. Well, according to the odds, but I mean. You could feel it in the room. There was a woman behind me. Right, right. When Bobby won, she said, oh, my God, that. And so now they're reading Best Actor in a Dramatic Series. And I, I got an ending, a Lanford Wilson quote about the importance of doing things that matter and thanked the people in the middle and, and all of that. And then and then the beginning, though, I needed a joke. And I'm literally trying to think of a joke. Think of a joke. <laughs> get a, I need a joke. I need a joke. Right. And as Juliana Margulies was reading the names, I said, ooh, I got it. The only other thing I've ever won was in 2005 for right. Squid and the Whale. Right. I won Best Actor Over 50 from the AARP. <laughs> and as soon as I thought of that... right. And the winner is Jeff Daniels, the newsroom. And I remember looking at her going, oh, that's what it sounds like when you win. Right. And I turned to my wife, kissed my wife, got up, got the woman behind me when they said my name. I'll never. Jeff Daniels, newsroom. What? <laughs> the New York Times the next right. day said when Mr. Daniels' name was announced, there was an audible gasp <laughs> in the theater well it's true right
0: but it's i loved it it's not because it wasn't deserved it's because everybody was just like counting the years for john ham right or whatever it may have been at that point i don't know yeah but 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 a lot of boys
1: who easily could have been walking up there had to stay in their seats right and that 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 was it was a shocker to me to to everyone
0: awesome moment i I remember it very well and so all right with our remaining two minutes here i just want to Hone in on a few more Blackbird-related things, if we can. Um, what, obviously, there's the physical grind. What for you, though, if you had to describe it? What is the hardest part about doing this show? Is it is it humanizing a guy who, if we didn't, if we just heard what he'd done, most people would say, you know, f that guy. You know, who cares? You, but we, you, you, you don't say that with this guy because you see the complexity of him. Is that is that the challenge of getting the audience to? Sort of look at him uh, with a fresh
1: set of eyes. I, I've never, I've never cared what the audience thought about him. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't judge him. I just kind of become him and mm-hmm. think like he thinks. And then it's up to Joe and David, the the playwright, to. I, I don't care. And this was an interesting play. I don't care what the audience thinks.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Michelle and I go out there and go, pay attention, keep up. We aren't out there to be liked or. So we just do what we do and you go through what they go through every night. The hardest part of doing any play, but particularly a drama that that demands so much, you know, literally you gut yourself every night, is that you got to live up to yourself. If you get the reviews, that's one hurdle, but it's an early, early, early hurdle. Mm-hmm. Now you've got to live up to those so that three months later in our case when you have tony voters coming it's opening Mm -hmm. night all over Mm -hmm. again every single show right you can't take a show off you can't be tired because it's eight times a week and it's show number literally 129 Mm -hmm. and it's really hard and it's not the first time anymore none of that matters these people are paying a lot of money um they have heard great things about what you two are doing mm-hmm. in this. So deliver. As I tell Michelle, and she's all in, she's, there's no diva there, right. she's all in, and has been all in every show, and, and I, I tell her, we got the rest of our lives not to do this play. So, And the only way to do it is all in, because if you go all in and you gut yourself eight times a week, even the Wednesday matinees, if you gut yourself... Uh, they will experience what those who saw it way back when the reviews happened, you know. Now that's we're on there 20 weeks. We're not out there like Hamilton's coming up on two years. Right. And I get that. Right. In Carnage, we did 256 shows right. or something, and this is we're going to end up with 140 something. But even so,
0: after that many performances, do you still have unanswered questions about these characters? I mean, to me, I wonder if you have to discuss with Joe Mantello who you've been talking about this show with since 2007, is are there, you know, a couple things that occurred to me. Why does Una schlep all this way to see Ray? Is, is she deep down hoping to ruin him again or to reunite with him? Uh, when she sees this other young girl that, that runs in, and again, two weeks, so I feel two like it's okay. Um, this other young girl that ends up running in, is she gasping upset because she is... Uh, afraid that he might be subjecting this girl to the same thing, or because she's affronted that there might have been a, she might not have been the only one. You know, these kinds of questions, I'm not saying tell me, but do you have to know the answers to to all of those questions in order to be able to to do your job?
1: I don't have to know, nor do I have to care what Una, Michelle's character, thinks about anything. Mm -hmm. Uh, I have to, and Joe said, and Joe said, I don't need to know. I need to know, you need to know what Ray is doing Outside of this room with whomever mm-hmm. you need to and so I you make choices that up up the stakes mm-hmm. that that in my case apply to the whole play not just some easy way out and I think I took nine years ago I took some easy ways out I, I took some uh, oh I'm, I'm not doing this and I'm just that it was one time and now I just want to leave and get out of here right. <laughs> And this time, it's it's much, far more complicated than that. I'm not going to say that he's, he's involved with anyone else. Mm-hmm. But he's been denying what's still inside him. And having Una show up, uh, it's like for an alcoholic. It's like, you know, I'm not an alcoholic, and I beat it, and I, I'm over it. And then somebody opens a bottle of whiskey and waves it under your nose, and you... You have to stand there and sniff it for an hour. Sure. That's, what, that's what we added. And, and he is fighting her. I'm not one of them. I'm not one of them. But he's also fighting in himself because in himself it's going, yes, you are. You can change your name. You can move away. But every night you go to read that kid a bedtime story now. You insist on being the one who reads the bedtime story, and you hop on top of her bed, and you know when she touches your arm, but you're not one of them. Mm-hmm. But she's touching your arm, but you're not one of them. That's what's going on. Amazing.
0: Well, the last question is just some people have called this, a lot of people have called this, uh, you know, the performance of your career, and it's sort of the, a definitive role. Obviously, you've anyone that hears about this show is going to associate it with you. Um, I'm curious to know where you feel it ranks in the grand scheme of all that we've been talking about all these all these roles over the years and also, you know, how meaningful it, it, it is to, you know, even knowing the, the silliness of aspects of it, campaigning and whatever the, the the respect to get that kind of respect again from the Broadway community that you're now once again for the second time in six years, I guess a uh, uh, nominee for Best Actor Tony, it's, it's gotta be a
1: kind of big deal it's 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 what it was all part of the plan before, when I moved to Michigan was, the only thing I can control is being the best actor I can be. I can't control stardom, it's going to come and go, um, but I can control being, coming out of Carnage better, coming out of Newsroom better, going back at Blackbird because I didn't do it well enough before, and now leaving Blackbird going. No, that's I'd like to think that's definitive. so um, it, I I took the scenic route, right, but um <laughs> it it's uh it's probably more, especially being older it, it it means I'm I know it means so much more now to get just nominated to star on Broadway. I don't take that for granted for a second Awesome. Uh, versus, you know. Playing Flap Horton in Terms and and suddenly you're nominated and it's like this this means a lot. It, this this especially in the theater you right. cannot get away with things on stage. Right. We've had movie movie people come names going. I can't do what you guys are doing. Right. And that's that's um, that that means a lot. Good luck with the last twenty. You said last
0: tw- or how many how many shows remaining for you now? Fifteen. Fifteen. Uh, and then you can watch your tigers. and uh, watch
1: my tigers, and I'll, be, I'll spend the sun, summer um,
0: horizontal. Awesome. Well, you, you've earned it for sure, and, and I can't thank you enough. really appreciate this.
1: Thanks, Scott. Thank it's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash.